This is the Education Gadfly Show. Raising children in a pandemic. Little tiny ones. Lucky you. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my very special guest for this week, Allison Klein. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Allison is an assistant editor at Education Week. She has been writing there for many years, covers ed tech and learning environments and student wellness now. I got to know Allison well when she was on the federal education policy beat back on politics K-12 long, long ago, but it's exciting to have you on the show to talk about your new beat. But before we get to that, let's also welcome our regular co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you on. And turns out David and Allison have little guys at about the same age. Yes, they are part of the generation of parents raising children in a pandemic. Little tiny ones. Lucky you. Allison has a new article up at Education Week called Virtual Learning Was Better for Some Kids. Here's what teachers learned from them. Let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. Allison, I bet a lot of our listeners know you from your days covering federal education policy, you know, because we have a lot of the wonky wonks that like to listen to us as well. I know the wonky wonks. Do you miss Capitol Hill? How's this going for you? So I do sometimes really miss it, actually. I love policy and it is really fun to dig into it. I will say that it's been really fun, too, to get to talk to more teachers and parents, and students and principals, as opposed to you know, I used to talk to lobbyists and lawmakers a lot. So it's nice to talk to people who are on the ground doing the work. Not that lobbyists and lawmakers don't have an important role and important things to say, but that part of it has been a nice change. Also, Education Week tries to stay up on every twist and turn of federal policy, which is a lot more feature writing, which I really appreciate. And I noticed fewer anonymous sources in your stories these days. No, and I can't even think of an instance that I would let somebody be anonymous. It's a different kind of reporting. and. I'm glad I have that policy background. Helps you understand a lot. And it also makes you very assertive with sources. Can't believe we never had you on back. I'm glad that you're having me on now. Well, I was really taken by an article that you wrote recently. Virtual learning was better for some kids. Here's what teachers learned from them, which I just thought was a great synopsis. We've heard this really throughout the pandemic that lo and behold, as bad as virtual learning was for many kids, maybe most kids, it actually was a great experience for some kids. Maybe it's still a great experience now that the Delta variant is here and many places are continuing to at least offer virtual education. So tell us, what is it that's working well and for which kinds of kids? I do want to say that I have not heard from educators that it's more effective than in-person instruction for most kids. However, There are some kids, especially kids with learning differences, which might sort of seem counterintuitive. So again, not all children who fall into these categories, but children who may be on the autism spectrum or have attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. For them, sometimes being online can help them concentrate. They feel that they have more autonomy over their time. They can rewatch a lesson if they need to, to try to get a point. They can do online office hours, one-on-one with their teacher. And for many, you know, they're not dealing with the social aspects of school, which for kids who have ADHD can be, you know, good, then they're not distracted by other kids around them. Or for kids who, you know, being around other people, their age, other peers, or even just people in general, it's not their comfort place. Like being alone or being with a few close friends is their comfort place. 
and being in a class with, you know, 30 other kids is a lot of sensory overload or just makes them feel uncomfortable, you know, in general, they just don't like having a lot of people around them. They might feel judged middle school and high school, even elementary school can be like that for some kids. No, it all makes sense. And I bet people listening at home are shaking their head. I mean, look, for a lot of us, we enjoy working at home at least part of the time for some of the same reasons, you know. I concentrate much better at home. Right. That it can be hard for some of us to concentrate, you know, around others. To be clear, David, I enjoy coming to the office to see you. I do. (laughs) And maybe for certain tasks, it's better to be at home. A lot of these families have discovered that a virtual school would be a good option. But you're talking to teachers who are in brick and mortar settings for the most part, right? What do these Mm -hmm. teachers think they can do, if anything, to make the brick and mortar setting have some of these same benefits and attributes of what the kids have actually enjoyed about online learning? So obviously you can't completely replicate the experience, right? But teachers are brainstorming on this. One teacher that I talked to said that he noticed that three of his students, he's in a self-contained special education classroom, and he said three of his students, all of whom are on the autism spectrum, really don't deal well with the social aspect of school. When they just got to focus on their schoolwork, they all seemed happier, they performed better, they were able to concentrate better. So he's giving them a break from the lunchroom, basically, and said, you know, if you want to just stay in this room during lunch and work on some enrichment activities or even just doing some worksheets or word searches, like you're welcome to be in my room. You don't have to deal with the social time. That's one way. So the same teacher noticed that a lot of his students really loved the one-on-one instruction. So he's trying to incorporate that as much as possible into his class. Other teachers have told me they noticed their students really just appreciated the autonomy to be able to do things in the order they wanted to for the amount of time they wanted to. And there's a big debate about personalized learning, but that's one way to get at that. Let's talk about some of these. I mean, so like the lunchroom, again, this makes a ton of sense to me. Me too, as a former kid who hated the lunchroom. Right, exactly. For me, it was sort of like sixth grade, absolutely the worst. Yeah, seventh and eighth were bad for me. You know, let me play devil's advocate that people have always raised questions about homeschooling with the worry that kids that get homeschooled, they never have to deal with that experience of the lunchroom and these other Mm -hmm. challenges of being around big groups and that maybe they therefore don't learn how to overcome that. And then that at some point in their life, they're going to have to deal with these kinds of situations and they're not going to be ready. Do you buy that argument at all? I don't know that there's compelling research one way or the other. Now, it doesn't mean it's not out there. Like I just personally haven't come across that study of like, does it help to have had uncomfortable, awkward situations? (laughs) Does that help you later on in life? Does that make you more empathetic? Does that make you more resilient? Maybe. I mean, it would follow. You could see how that would be true. But I mean, I haven't talked to anyone who said like, yes. And I think it probably depends on the particular kid. Like some of the bullying can be really damaging. Lead them to commit suicide even, which is a very extreme, obviously, example of of what can happen. So it's a tough question. I know parents are wrestling with that. Parents of these Mm -hmm. kids, many of these kids who seem to be doing better online. The story that you're referring to is actually a sequel to a previous story that I wrote earlier this year about kids who are really loving virtual learning and why. And one of the parents that I talked to for that story, her son on the autism spectrum had been like hovering around B's and C's, was getting into fights all the time, and was just straight A student in virtual learning, had really learned how to organize himself, was much calmer and happier. And, you know, this woman um, is a former teacher. And she said that she'd spent other school years before the pandemic started all day, get text messages from um, colleagues 
thing. Your kid's having this issue. You know, you need to like come and deal with him, blah, 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 blah. And she was like, it's pandemic time. And I've never been more relaxed. And I'm so glad that this happened because I never would have tried this unless we were sort of forced into it. And my son does better socially when he's outside of school. Like he's got friends on his swim team and friends in the neighborhood. And so I think for him, this is just the best way for him to learn. And I talked to the student too, and he 100% agreed. I talked to another mom whose daughter really struggled socially in high school and who had been participating way more in class because for her, it was easier to participate in the chat to like write down her thoughts than to say them out loud in class. It just made her feel so much less self-conscious to be typing how she felt or typing answers. And she was way more engaged in school than she had been before, but her parents saw that and they appreciated the impact it was having on her. But they also were like, she needs to go back because she needs that to be successful in life. I think we should bring a chat into regular classrooms. What do you think? Oh, yeah. There's no reason you can't. I hadn't talked to any teacher yet at this point who said that. I will say that most of the experts that I talked to like really emphasize that it'll be important to talk to these kids, the ones who did better at home, about why that happened. What about that experience worked so well for them and how they think it might be able to be replicated in, you know, the more traditional brick and mortar environment? Yeah, no, look, I think you could. By all means, you could have a running chat. We've got all these devices in schools now after all of this. So in a lot of places that seems feasible. I don't know, David, what do you think about this notion from your teaching experience? Should we worry more about making the experience of school a better experience for kids? Or do we need to have this sort of old fashioned thing of like, These kids today, they need to learn how to suck it up and deal with the BS of school like we did. The way you phrase that question sort of suggests an answer, Mike. It's interesting that you put it that way instead of asking whether online learning is just a permanent option for some of these kids. I think there's definitely room for improvement, to state the obvious. I'm just reminded of a particular student I had who came in on the first day of school and insisted on wearing headphones, right? And of course, after a while, I said, well, you know, can you take those off, please? Right. And her answer, which I'm going to paraphrase, was basically, if I take them off, I'm going to get in trouble. And school rules compelled me to force her to take them off. And then she got in trouble. And as the school year went on, she got in more and more trouble. And it was really hard to watch. And so it just goes to show, you know, the student wanted to succeed. And students usually want to succeed. And It's easier said than done, but many of the things that we get frustrated with about students ultimately reflect, at some level, an inability to serve the student's needs. So that's a challenge, not a solution. But yes, I think we should try to learn from this experience like we learn from every experience. So the policy question then, of course, is, should we allow this to be a permanent option, right? You know, both as the pandemic is still lingering, unfortunately, with this Delta variant, right? But even afterwards. Should it just be the fact that everywhere in in America, you should have virtual school as an option? We've had some debates on this show about this earlier this summer. Darrell Bradford and I duked it out over this question, you know, where I was excited that some districts are making it harder for parents to opt for virtual learning because it's been such a terrible experience for so many kids trying to get them back in class, again, unless they have a compelling reason. The reasons you're describing to me sound compelling. You know, if you had an application process for virtual school, And you had to make the case that your kid was well suited for it. They're going to learn a lot and they're going to maybe learn better. I like that, right? I don't want to just continue enlarging these huge achievement gaps because we've got a whole bunch of kids, especially poor kids who are staying at home right now. 
I don't know that you can be for homeschooling and against virtual learning, right? So, I mean, in practice, I think it's it's going to stay as an option. And I think the way we talk about it in some ways is a little bit of a, a barrier to understanding, right? Because there's sort of a spectrum, right? Yeah. I and mean, it's really a mix of the two increasingly. Yeah, I want to get kids back in school too, Mike. But I think ultimately we're going to have to convince parents that that's in their best interest. Right, rather than just force them. I mean, it's similar to the vaccination debate. So, Allison, are you hearing some of these families worried that they're not going to have this option anymore, that this option is going away? I haven't talked to any family who was in that situation. I think like many school districts are planning to have some sort of virtual option or virtual academy going forward. I don't know what, you know, these are going to look like. That's a huge story for us to cover going forward. For the most part, teachers don't want to teach online, but there are a few who really love it. So It'll be hard to staff these schools with, you know, high quality teachers, obviously virtual learning, not just this year, but even before the pandemic, you know, was really controversial. And many people thought that it, you know, there were a lot of a lot of problems with it. I do think it's the quality is going to have to improve across the board. But I would be surprised if 10 years from now, most school districts didn't have some sort of virtual option for all students. Yeah, no, I think that sounds right. And maybe two years. I think it could be two years. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, really appreciate you being on the show. Allison Klein, again, from Education Week. Check out her latest story, a sequel, as I learned. Virtual (laughs) learning was better for some kids. Here's what teachers learned from them on the Ed Week website. Allison, thanks so much for coming on the show. Enjoy that that little guy you've got there at home. Thank you. And I hope you'll come back sometime soon. I would love to. Thanks so much. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Although I guess I should be welcoming myself back to the show, given that I was gone for a few weeks. We have kept it going over here while you've been, you know, in Maine. I escaping the D.C. heat. And now we understand David is out in Portland where he needs to escape the heat. This is crazy. Things are going nuts. Might be something to this climate change thing. But I think it's toasty there in Richmond. Do people complain about it in Richmond? Some complaining, but not nearly what I hear about other places, because I don't know, we've had a lot of rain, but the last few days it's been sunny and nice and I'm not complaining at all. Yeah, there you go. No, it's kind of like, you know, people move to D.C. and of course, you know, most people in D.C. are not from D.C. And then they're surprised that the weather is as bad as people say it is in the summer. It's a little bit like when, I don't know, you marry into the royal family and then you're surprised that the paparazzi is something you have to deal with. This was well-known information. And anyways, we're here to talk about research. We love research. So anyhow, I got a cool study this week. We know that during the first full year, at least I just saw this factoid, you guys probably did too, after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, enrollment in U.S. schools fell dramatically by about a decline of 1.1 million students or 2% of our prior K-12 enrollment. That was the sort of the factoid that this study started with, it's conducted by Tom D. and three other Stanford researchers. It examines how school reopening decisions affected public school enrollment declines, as well as what they reveal about parents' instructional preferences. I think this study got, maybe it was in the Wall Street Journal or the Post, I forget where I saw it cited, but it's been getting some play here. They use federal data to gather district enrollment counts from 2015-16 through 2019-20. But because the feds have not released district by grade level enrollment for 2021, they collect those data directly from state level departments of education. 
Their sample includes traditional districts, but not charters, unless those charters are authorized by the district. And they use district reopening plans that are tracked by Burbio, which tracks instructional mode status by grade level for roughly 1,200 districts at various points in time and by school level. I guess they got some of those data through special agreement with Burbio. So their analytic sample, which relies on Burbio's sampling strategy, ultimately encompasses 35% of all public school students and ends up being more urban and suburban compared to our national landscape. And their samples serve slightly higher concentrations of poor students. They also track COVID-19 prevalence at the county level and state decisions relative to COVID-19 restrictions like stay-at-home orders and public transportation limitations that could influence school instructional mode and parent perceptions of COVID-19 risk. All right, descriptively, they find that, and some of this we know from other studies, they find that half of the districts chose remote-only instruction, mm-hmm. while the other, while 27% chose in-person and 23% chose hybrid. They use a comparative interrupted time series design, helps control for the fact that remote-only districts tended to be larger and urban with decreasing enrollment preceding COVID-19. Lots about this methodology, but I'm going to get into their key finding, which is that the decision to offer remote-only instruction last fall contributed meaningfully to disenrollment from public schools, specifically Their estimates show that offering remote-only instruction increased disenrollment by 42%. So that's a change from 2.6 to 3.7% relative to in-person instruction, while hybrid instruction had small and statistically insignificant effects. And then to frame these effect sizes against the national decline in public school enrollment, they explain that public schools previously enrolled roughly 49 million students and that roughly 50% of students faced remote-only instruction as of November 2020 per the results of some other studies. And the additional enrollment decline in remote-only districts implies that public schools lost roughly 300,000 K-12 students as a result of their decisions. And then that also suggests that widespread adoption of remote-only instruction explains roughly a quarter of the disenrollment from public schools. They find that the effects of remote-only instruction on the decline in public school enrollment were particularly concentrated in kindergarten and the elementary school grades. They did not find consistent evidence that remote instruction influenced middle or high school enrollment, including not contributing to dropout behavior. They didn't find consistent evidence that hybrid instruction had an impact either. Almost done, the disenrollment effects of remote instruction in districts serving higher concentrations of Black students was nearly twice as large as in districts serving lower concentrations of Black students. And that's consistent with survey evidence that Black parents disproportionately support remote learning. Analysts also say the sharp drop in kindergarten enrollment, which is another thing they found, might mean that substantial numbers may redshirt or postpone into this fall. So it could make for an unusually large mixed age cohort to pass through the system if districts don't somehow make staffing changes to accommodate it. Lots of interesting information in there. You know, I mean, all of this to me sounds like common sense, you know, especially the fact that we, we know that a lot of the enrollment decline was concentrated in kindergarten, which is logical. I mean, if I had a kindergartner last fall and the option was fully remote, I would have been very interested in redshirting them. 
So that's not surprising. I think it is important to point out, though, that we don't see much enrollment decline at the middle school or high school level. Yes. You know, for people out there in the school choice world who have been trying to make the case that, you know, this was a game changer and we've seen all these families, millions of families leaving the traditional public schools. I don't know. That's not a great point in your favor for that argument, right? Because you'd expect to see that in middle school and high school too. I mean, there's no doubt that remote learning was particularly terrible for the tiny tots, Mm -hmm. right? And so you can imagine not only the kindergarten issue, but also for first, second, third, fourth graders, parents saying, I can't babysit my kid this year. I can't homeschool them, you know, which is what the school district's asking me more or less to do. So I'm going to find a Catholic school or someplace else to put them. You know, maybe at the middle school and high school level, you say, well, you know, my kid's more independent. They're older. It's not great, but they can handle it and and handle it on their own. Right. They can also handle being at home by themselves alone if that was something that parents had to do. So those are all my thoughts, especially on this question about whether this moment in time is going to lead to a permanent change in the proportion of kids who are in public schools. You know, Robert writes about this this week in the Education Gadfly you know, starting to be open to the idea that maybe it will. I don't know. I think it's still too soon to know. And I guess we'll find out, I don't know, how soon, Amber, will we have data to know whether these kindergarten enrollments this year have really rebounded as we would expect. We're going to have extra large kindergarten cohorts, we think, right? Amber, can I just get a point of clarification before you you answer that question? So are they estimating the additional effect of remote learning on top of sort of whatever the general effect of COVID is? Or are they estimating the net effect? I think it's the net effect, but I'm not 100% sure, David. That's a good question. I think they collected all this data on, you know, this COVID-19 prevalence and the stay-at-home orders and the public transportation. But honestly, there wasn't a ton of discussion of that in the paper, which sort of surprised me because they went to great aims to collect all that. I don't know. I'm a little surprised that there isn't more of an effect. I don't know what I would have hypothesized, but I would have thought that people would care. I guess maybe people just don't have many other options in practice. Is that your interpretation? Yeah, I feel like we think that parents are a lot more dissatisfied than they really are in general. And I feel like we hear a lot about, you know, parents just, they love their schools. And even in a pandemic, there seems to be a lot of sympathy for what schools and teachers are going through. And no, we didn't see, you know, a lot of middle and high school age parents, you know, taking their kids out of school. But at the time, we keep thinking it's only going to last a couple more months, right? And I find myself doing this even with the Delta variant, right? At the time people were making this decision, I guess is my point, they may not have realized how consequential it was. Yeah, no, that's right. And look, the options is key. I mean, what were parents going to do? I mean, most parents can't afford to put their kid even in a Catholic school, if they're, right. even though those are relatively less expensive, if there's room in that Catholic school. You know, my sense is that, look, at the middle school and high school level and most you know, certainly metro areas, you're talking about pricey, pricey private schools. Maybe in the elementary school level, you've got more of these low-cost Catholic schools around that were options. But look, for most parents, we had to make do with what we got. And what we got was not a lot, but there you go. Do you get a sense, Amber, if this is just the beginning? Of, I mean, because enrollment's, I guess, interesting, but it's not as interesting as other. Oh, sure. Other... I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to be seeing so much research on, yeah. on the implications of COVID and yeah. as it continues. So, yeah. yeah. And from this team in particular. I do think that's right. You know, this Burbio data are, are pretty interesting in the fact that they had the manpower then to follow up and get this enrollment data. There's got some kind of 
Stanford database that I wasn't familiar with. I didn't talk about in here, but apparently they've, they've got a good data source to continue to do these types of studies. I think it's some kind of machine learning sort of thing going on. See, this is exciting. This is what's going to happen in research. We're going to be able to have these bots, you know, scour the web and collect data for us. The future is now, Mike. Yeah, love it. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffin. And I'm Mike Petrilli. Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.